Tonight we review the process that gives us the source of Christianity, Jesus Christ, his life and works as recorded in the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. The first thing we need to ask ourselves as potential skeptics is how do we know that what's considered authoritative about Christianity is trustworthy? Can we hang our hats on this stuff, on these books and what they have to say? Or is it that the reality is that the Bible is just some archaic artifact from a bygone age that has gone through so many changes that we couldn't possibly know what actually happened or whether or not there are even the original words intended by their authors in here? By the end of the evening, whether you're a Christian or not, when you come to the Bible, you're going to be able to proclaim with great confidence that this book is an accurate and trustworthy testimony of the original documents. Whether or not you're persuaded by the content found in this book and in these documents is an entirely different story. We're not dealing with content yet. We're just going to go one step at a time. We're just dealing with, is it trustworthy? So if you're a Christian studying the scriptures, you can trust that the scriptures have been authentically replicated through the centuries and you're reading the very word of God. But if you're a non-Christian, when you come to the scriptures, you will be able to trust that they're reliable and that they're the honest words of the individuals who wrote them down and that they've been communicated to you objectively in a way you can also study and contend with. In order to answer tonight's question, we will have to discuss a topic called textual criticism. Textual criticism is concerned with the study and identification of variants. This is a study that extends to all types of literature, not just the Bible. And this means that when you or I copy by hand something that has been previously written down, every time we make a mistake in our copying or add or subtract something in our copying, the textual critic catalogs and documents each individual change between the original, the first copy, and the second copy, and so on and so forth. In the case where there is no original, to look at in order to compare, and this is where the vast majority of textual criticism concerns itself, we can look at the copies that we do have and decipher the original by noting where there is agreement between the copies and where there is disagreement. Where there is agreement, we say, okay, that was part of the original. And where there is disagreement, we ask ourselves, how do the copies disagree? What is the quality of the disagreement? Meaning, of course, that there is a difference between two manuscripts disagreeing on the spelling of a name and two manuscripts disagreeing on whether or not an entire paragraph of material should be in there. The quality of the disagreement matters immensely in this discussion. I've provided you with a physical Pentateuch to look over, but you'll notice that I don't have any New Testament manuscripts for you to physically scrutinize this evening. This is for two reasons. First, New Testament manuscripts are all in museums or they're still being discovered and that may surprise you. We're still finding otherwise unknown copies of the New Testament today. So, access to New Testament manuscripts is only available through visiting the manuscript in person or through digital scanning of those same documents. I'll show you some examples shortly. Secondly, due to the content of the New Testament, the claims of Jesus Christ and the historical advancement of the Christian religion, the New Testament is scrutinized more than any other work of literature. Why? Well, because it's a really big deal when thousands of people are willing to lay down their lives to attest to a story found inside these pages. I'll give you just one example, and there are scores of them. During the reign of Nero, the emperor responsible for having beheaded the apostle Paul, he persecuted the very first followers of Jesus Christ by impaling them on stakes, lighting them on fire, 
and using them as human torches to light his dinner parties. These are people who were there to witness Jesus feeding the 5,000. These were people who were there to witness the resurrection of Lazarus. And these were people who would have been able to say, as the four gospels were being circulated inside of the Roman Empire, hey, that's not accurate. I was there, that's not what happened. Or hey, yeah, I was there, I witnessed that, I saw those miracles with my own eyes and I'm willing to die over that testimony. And die they did. You see, the power of the testimony found within the New Testament invites scrutiny. There is a specifically Christian problem here. No other religion claims both the historicity of their manuscripts and the historicity of their content. This isn't presented as a myth for the masses. It's presented as a narrative from those who witness these events personally. They're documenting what they personally experienced. And we have outside corroborating evidence for the fact that the immediate aftermath of these events saw hundreds of people willingly laying down their lives for what they witnessed and then physically being slaughtered for it. They didn't get off the hook for what they were willing to testify to. And when you study specifically the psychology of breaking an individual into admitting a lie, for example, the reason why torture is so effective is because human beings are unwilling to die over something they know to be untrue. They can only keep a lie going for so long and through so much pain, but that pain has a limit. And at some point, they will break. In the case of the testimony of the individuals tortured and executed for their belief, that willingness extends all the way back to the very individuals who lived during the first generation of hearers. They were telling the truth about what they saw and heard personally, and their testimony was in the range of thousands, not simply a handful of guys trying to make up a myth. Now, there are two mistakes that folks regularly make when discussing the issue tonight. Uh, the first one is to adopt an attitude of radical skepticism. Those are the folks that read Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code novel, and they convince themselves that Brown is really a theologian. It's the position that says, basically, we have no idea that what we're reading today looks anything like what was written down in the first century. It's the position that says the Bible has been translated and retranslated so many times that there has been so many changes made over the centuries to such a high degree that we can never really know what was actually written down originally. And this position is entirely false. If you leave here tonight having heard nothing else in this talk, I want you to leave hearing my voice in your head, reminding you constantly that this level of radical skepticism is considered entirely false by non-Christian and Christian textual scholars alike. And I will be demonstrating why at the end. The best anyone has to complain about while being consistent with the scholarship is I don't like what the Bible has to say. Not we can never know what the Bible was supposed to say. Got it? Okay. The second big mistake is the opposite side of the spectrum. It's an attitude of absolute certainty. This is the attitude that says every single spelling of every single ancient city name, every single point of punctuation, every single word order and every single minutia location in English is identical to what the apostles wrote down. These are the folks you hear say things like, I carry a KJV because that's what Jesus used. You know who they are. <laughs> this attitude is what our children build a foundation of belief on for their entire childhood. And then they get to college with me, 
right? And it takes one lecture by an honest Christianity 101 professor covering textual variants, and suddenly their foundation is found to have been made of sand, and they're questioning whether or not they're Christians anymore at all. This position is entirely false. If you leave here tonight, having heard nothing else in this talk, I want you to leave hearing my voice in your head reminding you constantly that this level of absolute certainty is false. We cannot be absolutely certain that what we're reading is, in every respect, what the apostles penned in the originals, for now. And we'll get to why I'm saying that here in a minute. There's no need to panic for those of you who are hearing this for the first time. This is not new stuff. This is the position Christianity has taught all the way back to the patristic times. When we have a discussion on inerrancy, that discussion only applies to the originals. It does not apply to the copies. It has never applied to the copies, and it doesn't apply to the Bible you pull up on your phones or the Bible you carry to small group. What you carry with you is a trustworthy translation to the best of our ability to represent what the Greek manuscripts have to say in a language that you can read. And when you think about this, it's obvious. The language we speak today, modern English, didn't exist 2,000 years ago. How do we as English speakers convey to our neighbors the gospel if we don't translate it into a language that we can read? And what do we do when, as occurs in any language translation, when we come to a word in Greek that has no equivalent in English? Do we translate that Greek word by using the closest English word we can find and lose the depth of meaning? Or do we use a phrase in English that conveys the depth of meaning and lose a word-for-word -word translation process? Did you know that this is the reason why we have so many different types of Bibles? As our language evolves and develops, just as we add new words to the Oxford English Dictionary every year, we also lose English words that become defunct. For example, did you know that the KJV is not the first English translation of the Bible? Not even close. William Tyndale did that almost 100 years prior to the King James 1611 edition. You would barely be able to recognize Tyndale's English today. Some of us can barely handle the these and thous of our grandparents' KJVs. We don't say thee and thou anymore. We used to, but our language is fluid and it's adapted. The point is that we have all these different Bibles um, not because there is an agreement in the manuscripts themselves, it's because there's a need to continually adapt to the constant advancement of human language. So if the truth is that you fall on the hyper-skeptical side of the spectrum, like say you hold to a position that the folks who are translating these manuscripts can't be trusted, no problem. You can translate them yourself. I have a buddy, his devotions every morning for 30 minutes is him translating the New Testament from Greek to English just for himself. And the powerful part of this is that we have these manuscripts for you to translate for free at your leisure. You yourself can verify and double check any translation you wish. In fact, this is how we know when someone has altered the scriptures to fit their own agendas. The Jehovah's Witnesses, those guys you wake up to on Saturday morning with magazines, they carry with them their own special version of the scriptures called the New World Translation. I say special because in every location that demonstrates to the reader a call to attention of Jesus' divinity, those have either been deleted or altered. 
How do we know this? Because we can lay the Greek manuscripts next to the New World Translation and see that they don't match. Not even close. It's clear as day that in 1960, when Nathan Nord translated the Jehovah's Witnesses Bible, he inserted or omitted anything that wouldn't sell books. And in fact, if you go on eBay and pick up an old New World Translation interlinear, like what I have up here, it's purple, which is a book that has the Greek words printed and then the English underneath, you'll see that the interlinear is correct, but the printed New World Translation that they carry and give out is altered. All right, here's another example. Ever dialogued with a Muslim on this topic before? Surah 10, 94 and 95 is Allah addressing the Prophet Muhammad's doubts. Allah instructs Muhammad to ask the people who have been reading the scriptures that came before him, this is a reference in the Quran to the Bible, uh, that he is to consult them for clarification, beginning at Ayah 90 or verse 90. Allah recounts the people Israel fleeing Pharaoh and crossing the Red Sea. By Ayah 93, Allah reminds Muhammad that he was the one to give them the great signs for them to heed, including having given the children of Israel a beautiful dwelling place, the promised land to settle in. In Ayah 94, Allah says in conclusion to these thoughts, Muhammad, if you are in doubt of what Allah has revealed to you, then ask the people of the book, the people who have been reading the scriptures that came before you. The truth has indeed come to you from the Lord so that you may not be in doubt. So here we have the word of Allah instructing Muhammad to seek out Jews and Christians if he has questions. Seems like a no-brainer, right? Evangelism, the opportunity for Christians 101, right? Wrong. Because in Islam, it's taught that our scriptures have been altered over time by scribes. Exactly what we're talking about tonight. It was good back then. But now, certainly not. So what do we do in this case? Well, we say, okay, let's pull the Greek from the time of the prophet Muhammad. It was the will of Allah to reveal himself to Muhammad via the angel Gabriel in Hira around 610 AD-ish. We have 933 Greek manuscripts dating from that time as far back as 200 AD. Mix in the Arabic translations dating to before that time period and the number increases to several thousand. Set them side by side and open up to John chapter 14, verse six, where Jesus proclaims, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me and see that there's agreement without alteration across every single manuscript. If the word of Allah instructs Muhammad to seek out Christians for clarification and the Bible said that Jesus is the only way to salvation at the time that Allah willed to reveal himself to Muslims, then why our Muslim neighbors, are you believing the caliphs, the mullahs, and the ayatollahs who are teaching what is contrary to what Allah has revealed about himself and what his prophet has conveyed to Islam? Can you see how powerful this manuscript evidence can be? Okay. There's an old adage that's used by Dan Wallace, the world's leading expert on this material. I recommend him. He's wonderful. An ounce of evidence is worth a pound of presumption. There are four times more New Testament manuscripts within the first 200 years than the average Greco-Roman author has in 2,000 years. Within 900 years of the New Testament's completion, almost 1,000 manuscripts existed in Greek alone. Within 900 years of the average classical author's writings, guess how many manuscripts there are? Zero. We have so many examples of the New Testament, it's embarrassing. 
There is no other piece of ancient literature that even comes close. Dr. Wallace is a textual critic who founded the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, and he's done the work of calculating just how vast a number this actually is for visual comparison. If you're a visual learner, check this out. If you were to stack every single piece of Greco-Roman literature other than the New Testament in a pile, one on top of another, it would be roughly as high a stack as like this table, from the stage to the top of the table, four and a half-ish feet. If you were to do the same thing with New Testament manuscripts, the pile would be as high as 4.5 empire state buildings tall. We're talking units of miles instead of feet. He calls it an embarrassment of riches. In fact, if you were to take every single New Testament manuscript we have and set them on fire, we would have over one million quotations from the New Testament quoted by early church writers to reconstruct it. There are only about 8,000 verses in the New Testament, so having over a million quotations from homilies and sermons and commentaries alike means there's a lot of overlap. And out of all of this, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of examples, we find that the New Testament you hold in your hand is 99.5% contextually pure. That means all copies agree in all places except than less than 1%. That's unheard of. When you look at any other piece of literature from the same time period, in fact, if you were to throw out, let's do a thought experiment. If you were to throw out the New Testament on the basis of variation of less than 1%, you would have to throw everything you've ever read about Greco-Roman history out as well then. Right? You never see anybody this skeptical over whether or not Alexander the Great lived. And the only thing we have about him is hearsay. The earliest account of Alexander the Great was written 400 years after he died. The earliest account of Jesus is 1 Corinthians 15, and it was written within five years of Jesus' death. The earliest non-Christian account of Jesus that we have is Josephus, and he wrote only 70 years after Jesus' death. So if we as potential skeptics are going to toss the Jesus story out, then we must be intellectually honest enough to apply our standards across the board. Julius Caesar, gone. Homer's account of the Trojan Wars, gone. Did you like the movie 300? Go ahead and set that on fire because that's from Herodotus' history of the Greco-Persian Wars and that didn't happen either. Ever take a formal debate class? Those principles are based on what is called the Socratic Alinkus. Those are the writings of Plato and Xenophon. They are also gone. You getting my point? Okay, Anna, we get it, you're beating a dead horse. What we really wanna know is what is the disagreement in the New Testament? You said everybody agrees on over 99%. I wanna know what that last less than 1% disagreement is about. Okay, here we go, you ready? The disagreement is on the spelling of words, inclusion of articles in word order. Uh, for less than one-fifth of that 1%, we have meaningful variants. Those are variants that are including passages on exorcism, the mark of the beast, the long ending of Mark, and as well as the story of the adulterous woman in the Gospel of John. Okay, so let's take it one at a time. Disagreement type one, spelling of words. That's like if you were to spell my name A-N-A -A, as opposed to A-N-N-A. -N -N -A. The meaning doesn't change, but there's a disagreement over how we spell Anna. Or a, spe a spelling error like when someone's writing too quickly and they invert two letters or miss a letter. Like if you were to write A-apple instead of an-apple, right? We can still understand you, but technically it's a difference, so we've got to mark it. 
Disagreement type two, word order. In English, words, word order matters immensely. I'm gonna use Dan Wallace's example because he's an expert in this field. Um, if I were to take the sentence, John loves Mary, and write it, loves John Mary, I wouldn't be making a whole lot of sense. It's the same reason Yoda sounds odd, right? We can still understand him, but his English is broken. Well, in Greek, word order matters very little. What matters and what tells the reader what's being communicated is word endings and tenses. Greek is an extremely precise language. I mean, think about it. We only have one word to convey an emotion that is arguably the deepest and most profoundly powerful emotion human beings have ever experienced, love. Yet Greek has four different words, each delineating the different ways you can understand that word, right? When I say I love my husband, I'm referencing a much deeper and involved love than when I say I love reading The Lord of the Rings. In Greek, there are 96 different ways to write the sentence, John loves Mary. And that's because in Greek grammar, you can also add or admit articles or conjunctions. And so long as the word endings are in agreement, the meaning of the sentence doesn't change at all. In fact, if I add in the conjunctions, the number jumps from 96 to 384 different ways. All of them meaning exactly the same thing. John loves Mary. So here again, the variation doesn't change the meaning of the passage whatsoever. That brings us to disagreement type three, changes in meaning. This is the juicy stuff. This is the stuff that sells books. Here we go. Mark 9:29 deals with the casting out of a specific type of demon. Our earliest manuscripts record that Jesus said, this kind can only be cast out by prayer. Later manuscripts record that interchange as saying, this kind can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. What do we do here? Our textual scholars have recommended through the centuries that when you embark on an exorcism of this nature, that you hedge your bets and you go ahead and you fast too. Okay, moving on. Revelation 13, 18. Let the one who has insight calculate the beast's number, for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. In 1846, a young religion student named Constantine Tischendorf was practicing a new method of manuscript preservation, the chemical bath, to expose some undertext on a fifth century copy of Revelation. To his surprise, the undertext revealed that the number of the beast was not 666, but rather 616. In 1998, a neglected shoebox of miscellaneous shards of papyrus stored at the Ashmolean Museum in Cambridge was found to contain a fragment of Revelation 13, 18 which read quite clearly, 616. Our textual scholars therefore humbly recommend that when CNN runs a special on Armageddon around Easter, like right now, and you don't take the, that you don't take those claims as dogma, okay? They also recommend that for those of you who have a superstitious bent, that when the cashier rings up your order and the total comes to $6.66, that you can breathe a sigh of relief and not feel obligated to buy anything else, you know who you are. <laughs> Moving on. Mark 16, 19 through 20, this is the long ending of Mark's gospel. There are actually five different length endings for the gospel of Mark, meaning that there is disagreement as to where to cut off the verses when you get past verse 18. 
For most of you, when you open to this passage, there will be a big bracket around this portion of scripture and a note that says in your Bibles, this passage is not present in the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament or something to that effect. The reason why that note is there is because it's true. The debate over this passage extends all the way back to our earliest church historians after the Great Schism when the Roman Empire split between East and West. We have Eusebius with all of the wealth of the Eastern Empire pouring over these manuscripts. And he admits openly that this passage is not present in earliest manuscripts. So too Jerome, responsible for translating the Greek manuscripts into Latin called the Vulgate, in the West admits openly that this passage is not in the earliest manuscripts that he has access to. This is not new. No one discovered this recently. And it's why in seminary you're taught not to preach a sermon from this passage. Same thing goes with your final example. John chapter seven, verses 53 through John chapter eight, verse 11. The story of the woman caught in adultery. This story is not present in our earliest manuscripts. The reason why there are usually brackets around this passage as well is for that reason. There are no theological issues at hand in this story. It's a beautiful story. But nothing changes or alters in the gospel message or Christian orthodoxy here. We just have to be honest that it's not present in all of the manuscripts. And because it isn't present in our earliest ones, textual critics recommend that we use this passage sparingly for that reason. That's it. There you go. The four most interesting points of variation you now know. Notice that in every single one of these cases, no point of Christian orthodoxy, theology, doctrine, or the gospel message is changed in any way, shape, or form. This is why when we first embarked in the study tonight, I said it didn't matter whether or not you were a believer or an unbeliever. You don't need faith in order to appreciate the magnitude of evidence for the reliability of the New Testament. Faith comes into play later. Now, before we move on, you'll recall that I claim that non-Christian textual critics agree with what I'm concluding. I haven't proven that yet, so let me show you a quote from arguably the single most militantly damaging textual critic of the New Testament, Professor Bart Ehrman. In 2005, his popular book, Misquoting Jesus, caught the attention of Jon Stewart, and after that show aired in two days, it was an Amazon bestseller. This book has done so great a damage in the minds of regular, everyday Christians that it will keep apologists like me employed for years, which is massively ironic to we apologists in the field, given that apparently no one has noticed that the cover of his own book, talking about Greek manuscripts, depicts a manuscript written in Hebrew, and it's upside down. So... Why I am calling attention to it is because I want to point out that in spite of having written a book with as misleading a title as Misquoting Jesus, in his own appendix, page 252 of the paperback version, Professor Ehrman is asked this question. Why do you believe these core tenets of Christian orthodoxy to be in jeopardy based on the scribal errors you discovered in the biblical manuscripts? And to his credit, Dr. Ehrman answers that they are not in jeopardy at all. Here it is. Essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. It's just hidden in the appendix because that doesn't sell books. By far the biggest and loudest critic of the reliability of the New Testament admits openly that our conclusions tonight are true. So why is it that we're constantly faced with this complete fabrication that the Bible is untrustworthy? That these documents are missing 
or that they're no longer legible, or that there have been so many translations of it that we cannot possibly process its content accurately, or that we can't track the language changes from Koine Greek into modern Greek, or that we don't have documentation proving that these Christ notions weren't just some myth established by Constantine. If this subject matter is this obvious and this accessible, then how could these objections possibly remain popular? My suggestion to you this evening is that this answer is found on the first page of this book. And when the whisper of the enemy makes its first appearance to humans who have been invited to commune with their creator, just like we are. Because each of these objections are all iterations of the same underlying falsehood. Did God really say? It's exactly the same attack he's done in every generation that's ever existed. We should expect to see this sort of thing. We should expect to see these objections flourish around us in spite of their blatant error. And we need to be prepared to show those around us who do not yet know their creator just how accessible he is. And that yes, indeed, he did say. So too, when yet another iteration of the same original lie is suggested to we religiously inclined folks yearning for that spiritual high that comes from a hyper-focus on only certain part of the text, but never submitting ourselves to anything uncomfortable elsewhere, are we mentally cutting parts out of our Bibles like Thomas Jefferson did with his? He didn't like all those supernatural bits about Jesus being divine, so he razor-bladed them out of the text, and then he reprinted his corrected scriptures for the masses. Or, how about this one? Are we inserting concepts that are not present in the text because God's not performing at the level of revival we'd like to see him today? like the project Bethel Church is funding right now under the direction of Brian Simmons with the Passion Translation, a translation so full of new material that it's 50% larger in size, a translation that they readily admit is being fed to Simmons by an angel named Passion who is going to provide him with not only new insight about God's character, but also a new ending for the Gospel of John. Or how about this one? Are we so concerned with exclusively therapeutic pursuits that we invert the gospel entirely like Francois Dutoy has done with the Mirror Bible? He's removed any and all references to repentance or being born again as necessary prerequisites for understanding salvation. That there is no separation between God and man whatsoever. It's simply that we're all divine, but we just haven't accepted it yet. For Francois's followers, Christ is not a savior of mankind. Christ is the title that's given to mankind when they accept their godhood. Guys, this stuff is demonic. I'm serious. And I know I'm going to get emails about this and that's okay. I'm prepared. Uh, the reason I'm being so aggressively serious calling these things out on the floor is because it's literally my job to warn and alert on these things. But that isn't actually the important part because who cares what Anna Kiko has to say? The reason we must be aggressively serious about these things is because what's happening in these incidences is the altering of the very text that explains reality as a whole. This text is where we're introduced to the only person who can do anything with the human predicament of death and sin. This is where our Jesus is found. This is where our Jesus is explained. 
and they are changing the very place that God has asked us to concern our lives over. And don't misunderstand me. The people who are doing these things, I think, are sincere and intelligent people. But they're sincerely wrong. And these are sincere lies. And when a sincere lie is being packaged as a Bible, you better believe I'm going to be shouting it down every chance I get. I don't care how nice they are in real life or how successful their revival engine is running. There will be no quarter given for those who willfully profane the scriptures while calling themselves leaders of the people of God. Now, I realize some of you are sitting there going, okay, now I'm really uncomfortable and overwhelmed and stressed out that I'm using the wrong Bible. Where do I even begin in order to understand what I'm getting into selecting an English Bible translation? Okay, let's talk about that before we open up for Q&A. There are three types of translation philosophies that are all authentic. The first is called formal equivalence. This is what occurs when your translators select the closest English equivalent word for the Greek and Hebrew. The positives of, the, of these is that you're getting the richest one-to-one -one ratio or word-for-word -word ratio as possible with the text. The negative is that because there are so many Greek and Hebrew word idioms, and because there are many instances of concepts that simply don't translate well on a word-by-word -word level, that there are verses that will be functionally more confusing and clunkier than they need to be because the translators are having to select from modern English words that just don't possess the depth that's necessary to convey to the reader on the same level that they would be getting if they read Greek and Hebrew themselves. The second type of Bible translation seeks to mitigate the problems of the first. Those are the Bibles that are dynamically equivalent or translated on a thought-for-thought -thought level. The idea being that this will allow for depth of meaning to remain there while still being fluidly readable by the English speaker. The problem, though, is that if the translators interpreting, say, an idiom, fail to account for some part of that original word, how will the English speaker know it occurred if they don't have the literal meaning to compare the interpretation to? This is why when you're studying the scriptures in any great detail, you need multiple Bibles. It isn't because the text disagrees. It's because your translators are trying to provide you with a text to the best of their ability, and there are genuine translation limitations. This is why your leadership is expected to study Greek and Hebrew. It's so that while you're listening to them expound on the application of this content, that they can represent it at the depth that was intended. This is why when you're studying the scriptures in any great detail, you need this material. This brings us to the last section, paraphrase. This is when your translators give the gist of what is going on in a way that you can easily process, but as you can see, as soon as English shifts or there's a new understanding of something culturally dependent, a brand new edition will be required to keep up with the cultural content. I mean, already in my example with the Message Bible, the concept of skid row is already outdated. So on top of that, any deep theological or hermeneutical study of the scriptures requires the details that are not readily available in paraphrase form. So although this may be a great way to introduce someone to the Bible, it's certainly not something that I would ever recommend an existing Christian to spend any time in for their personal or small group study. It's too easily abused and far too removed from the depth of study that each one of us is to be focused on in our sanctification process. Okay, so Anna, do you have any favorites? Well, yes, I do, and I've brought them. Let me introduce you to just the first two, and then I promise I'll be done and we'll open up for Q&A. 
My highest recommendation for a one-stop shop is the New English Translation with full notes. If you don't want to carry something that large around all the time, then buy the full notes edition for home and carry a slimline with you. The black square of the text is your English translation and the surrounding smaller texts are your translator's notes in order to explain and fill in all of the locations where you need more information. Or there are two competing interpretations that had to be chosen between, so you were presented with both. Just to give you an example of how much explanation you're getting, the first two verses of Genesis chapter one require an entire page of explanation from your translators. Why choose when you can have it all? Next is an apologetic study Bible. As you move through the scriptures, you're given focused attention from a slew of Christian apologists anticipating common objections and explaining verses that regularly set and get abused by alternative religions. A very powerful tool for those of you with an obvious apologetic bent, clearly, as you're spending two hours with me on a Sunday evening. If you need charts for understanding the Bible and translation history, I have charts. If you need extra biblical resource recommendations, I have recommendations for days. If you are a spiritual leader in any sense of that title, pay attention to this slide. And with that, let's open up for some Q&A. We've got mics set up here in the front if you wanna come up and ask a question. And we'll go until we run out of questions. Okie dokie. Is that too much? Too much information too fast? Was I too mean? You gotta call this stuff out. It's getting old. Maybe I'm just getting old. You know how like as you age, you get more curmudgeonly? You gotta pray for me. Remember, you don't have to ask questions on just this material. You can ask anything you want. Worst thing I can say to you is, I have no idea. I'll get back to you. Hello. Why not just read the King James version of the Bible? Try. I do. The 1611? No. Oh, okay. (laughs) That's why. The King James version's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. I like it. It's got a couple funny translation things that we have to talk about that people point out, but it's usually just skeptics. And by that point, you can just call me. But there's nothing wrong with reading the King James Version at all. In fact, as the free Bible that I keep in my car is a new King James Version that I hand out to people. So nothing wrong with that. I thought you were talking about the 1611. I'm like, most people have never seen a 1611, even when they come to bookstores um, and they ask for an original King James. That's usually the question. I need an original King James. This isn't even the original and you still can't read it, but your question, sir. Uh, yes, uh, I had a question. So I've been asked this before when I'm talking to people, but when you're saying that Christians are a proof that they believe what they do by dying for their faith, what's the difference between, or how would you answer someone with the difference between that and, say, Muslims, who also commit suicide and kill others for their faith? So Good. how would you say the difference between those two? Great question. So I wouldn't say that there's a difference between the two. My, my argument is that you don't, you don't subject yourself to death over something you know is a lie. So in the case of the Muslim um, who is willing to sacrifice themselves for their belief, they really believe that that's true. In the same case, it's the same for the Christians who are willing to sacrifice themselves for that belief. So it, it's equivalent when I say that. But the objection that we usually face is that 
the apostles were making this story up and they were breeding a myth in order to sell books or they were lying about Jesus. And in those cases, when you subject someone who knows they are telling an untruth to torture, the truth doesn't remain, it gets exposed. And yet thousands of cases of torture didn't result in that. And I'm saying that's extremely powerful evidence that this story is accurately being told. Now, whether or not we're persuaded by it, totally different. But that the witnesses really believed what they were saying and were authentically writing down the story and it's corroborated over the cases of thousands. That's, that was the strength of that so evidence. saying that the people who died just proves that they, be, they believed what it was, not yes. saying that it was actually true. Correct. All right, thank you. Yes, of course. Great question. Okay. Can you hear me okay? A little bit louder if you would, Tracy. Thank okay. you. Um, there were those two verses um, that were not in the original manuscripts from John and where else? A long ending in Mark? Yes. Yes. So can you remind us how does it make it through the canonization process? Um, if it wasn't in original manuscripts, why did they include it in the canonization process? Could you talk a little bit about that process? Sure, sure. So the canonization process works like this. You have entire books being considered to, to considered the word of God, and there, were, there are certain criteria that they used to judge whether or not those books would be included. The first was, was it written by an apostle or somebody that traveled alongside Jesus and the disciples? That was one of the criteria. So anybody that didn't meet that criteria was, was nixed automatically. Um, the next criteria was internal consistency. So if it was the word of God, it had to be consistent all the way through, which means no contradictions, which is why um, some other books were tossed. Um, and the third was that it had to have been used by the people of God for the totality of the history of the people of God in the New Testament, meaning Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So what books were being used by the people of God? And already by, it was... Don't quote me on this because it's been a minute. There's an entire lecture on canonization up on the YouTube channel right now with all these details. Somewhere around 170, we have the first list of the New Testament that somebody is referencing in a sermon, and he's referencing its origin, I think. Um, he's referencing it in passing, and it's exactly the New Testament list that we have. So the reason why those verses would be included in the canonization process is because they were included in the book itself that was being circulated. So John was acceptable. It's just that that section, we're not sure if John physically wrote that down or if it was, a lot of times scribes would make comments in sections on our manuscripts. It's really cool when you see them. Um, you can see them all in the Center for New Testament Manuscripts. Um, they make the notes in the margins, like they're studying. We don't know if a scribal note got accidentally tacked on, and that's how that story got in there, or that it, it was just inserted later. We just don't know, and because we don't know, we have to be honest and go, this isn't in our earliest ones. It shows up later. So that's how that happens. I'm just curious, as far as the papyrus, is there any, I'm sorry, I gotta take this off. Is there any um, in the community where there may be some issues uh, due to the text, physical text, the ink dissipating because the papyrus is mm -hmm. degenerating over time that alters uh, a letter, like you, like you gave your example, Anna. So you have your letter A, mm -hmm. but if the letter A is altered because the ink has dried up. Mm -hmm. Now, in Greek or Hebrew, that letter A could mm -hmm. look like, I don't know, like a U. 
Yeah, like that. that happens is, in Hebrew. Is there any issues with that that's come up in the community that people are... Funny ones that we know about. For example, the notion that the fruit in the Garden of Eden was an apple is because a doggish lane, which is one of those little tiny flecks when you see up here, there are little tiny dots. In the Hebrew, they flake off over time. But we have manuscripts that predate, that demonstrate this as fruit, and the difference between fruit and the, our notion of apple is one doggish lane. And so at some point, that wasn't there, and so the scribe accurately said apple, and that's where that story comes from, even though our oldest manuscripts just say fruit. So yeah, it happens, but we know about it. So nothing, that's, I, nothing that I can think of. I, I literally gave you those, those four. Those are the things that are brought up the most by skeptics. That's why we focused on them. Everything else is just like, how do you spell Capernaum? Do you have the U or do you not? Like, we know what they were talking about. We're just not entirely positive what the physical autograph included the you or not. Things like that. And I'm just, you know, off the cuff, that one. You guys are quiet. No Jehovah's Witness questions or anything? We're, we're sleepy today. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the problem. This is my job is to make you not eat me anymore. So this is a good sign. So I have a question about the ending of Mark. Yes. Um, it seems to me, that that's the one that it seems like it introduces some ideas that actually can be sort of problematic, even though they aren't necessarily... Like snake handling and like, drinking poison? Bingo. Yeah, and so, and they do have those notes that say very clearly, the earliest manuscripts do not include this. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I just can't help myself. If you have a Bible that does not have those notes, do not continue using that Bible. Uh, there are there are some that just don't put that in there, especially with the ending of Mark, because there's some stuff in there that maybe is preferred mm -hmm. to be in there. Mm -hmm. um, but here's my question. At what point does it raise to the level that we say, this shouldn't be in here? Like, mm -hmm. or Do we ever reach a level where we go, okay, we have enough evidence that says this is not in the earliest manuscripts, scripts, and therefore we just stop at verse 8? I, I think it's, it's possible, but I highly doubt it because it's been the tradition because they're translators in particular. The guys that, I mean, these guys are incredible. They spend their entire careers doing this, just dedicated to pouring over being locked in an office, pouring over dead languages. But there's such a desire for brutal honesty that I think forever there will be that this has, was not present in the earliest manuscript. I suspect if, I, if, I'm, if I'm understanding translation tradition, um, I would hope so. So one of the things that's, that we talk about, like Dan Wallace does especially, your Bibles are getting more precise the more New Testament manuscripts are found. Um, so like, for example, when you read the New English translation, it's incredible and I highly recommend it. Um, but that being said, because it's been debated for so long too by translators, I don't know if that debate will ever rest. I don't know. <laughs> so, so the debate's... Still alive. The debate, the debate stands about whether or not it's, it's authentic. It's just that the, everybody's honest that it's just not there, and we do have lots of manuscripts that predate that. It, so it's like, it's highly unlikely. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. It's a tradition now, though. Mm -hmm. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. I, know, I know some translators that are willing to say, just use a black marker and black it out. Uh -huh. Yeah. Okay. And... Um, since there's no one else in mind, I'll, I'll just yeah, throw another one. I, I was just curious if you would take a moment to talk about the difference. But we're talking about these texts being literal and actual and true. Here we have them. Mm -hmm. But will you talk about how that, I think just in general, I want you to talk just a second about interpretation and talk a little bit about literalism, symbolism, allegory, that type of stuff. So yes. these are definitely the words 
you know, to the extent that we can be confident you did a great wide job yeah. communicating that. Can you maybe explain how that doesn't equate to always absolute literalism when you read the text? Anna, do you take the Bible literally? Is that the question? <laughs> in my classes, we're doing it right now. Somebody, some, some of my guys are smiling right now because we're doing, we're doing hermeneutics on Fridays right now. Um, we take the Bible literally, meaning it matters the genre that we're in right? We do take the Bible literally. When it's a poem, it's literally a poem. When it's a proverb, it's literally a proverb. When it's a narrative, it's literally a narrative. And we need to understand the context of genre, what that looks like, and that's the study of hermeneutics, right? If you want to take that class, you can. Um, so yes, it, it matters that we are not you, cr doing cross-genre readings or reading into the text something that we're bringing to the text ourselves from our modern sensibilities as opposed to reading out of the text what the ancient audience would have received and then taking the timeless statement out of that ancient audience reception and then applying it while cross-referencing all the other instances of scripture that deal with that same content, right? Because the Bible's holistic and scripture interprets scripture and then applying it to our homiletical statements. That's, that's the hermeneutical circle. Does that satisfy? Okay, cool, just making sure. I don't know who walked up first. Caroline, did you do it? I can't tell. Okay. I'm going to bring this down because Aaron was here. <laughs> okay. Um, I actually have two questions and you can take both, neither or one. Okay. Um, one is, I just had a conversation with um, a lovely fellow sister um, and uh, she was, um, under great conviction that uh, she had been reading um, corrupted versions of the Bible because the only, and you, you referred to this, the only um, accurate version is the KGV. KJV. Okay. 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 So, um, and, of course, I'd heard that before. So I just listened, and she recommended somebody I listened to. Mm -hmm. And um, her stance wasn't that one was better than another. She really had the conviction that this is the true and the rest are corrupted. Mm -hmm. So how would you have answered that? Um, so that's my first question. Shall I go with the second as well? Can, can, you, you want me to just answer it real sure. for the first one first? Yeah, okay, because otherwise have... my brain might, Okay. I'm, uh, you never know. I'm good. I could like completely tune out at any point. Don't need so. to. <laughs> um, I've got a one-year-old, so you guys have to be nice to me. Um, so there's nothing wrong with being KJV only. I've got a lot of folks that are KJV only. Totally fine. It's okay. I would where it's a problem is the notion that everything else is corrupted. Right. That's the part that's the problem. Right. Um, and so showing her the manuscript evidence, just going to that website and laying out the different, and showing her the types of translation, and seeing just if if just showing the fact that these translators are not misleading anybody by not going the KJV route, because the problem with the KJV is that it's a translation off of two previous translations. It's not directly off of the Greek and Hebrew. It's a, you, it, the Greek and Hebrew gets translated to Latin, which then gets tr translated to Tyndale's English, mm -hmm. which then gets translated into your KJV, which means you're, you're removed, your depth is removed by two generations. It's not the end of the world, but it's where we get real weird things like there are unicorns in the Bible. Like that's that's not accurate with the Greek, but it was back then the best word to describe that type of incident. But now it's real weird and unicorn doesn't mean the same thing. And you know what I mean? Like there are problems. Well, so 
that's, it's the, it's the, what I have an issue with and what burns, what burns my bacon is the arrogance of saying that every other English translation is automatically bad because it's not a KJV. Well, I suspect that everybody in this room may have a friend like that. Oh, sure. And I don't know that they're, right. you know, but being I don't wanna, arrogant, but how, I don't, where I don't does that dis- come from? I don't want to disparage the, the yeah. KJV only crowd because it's not right. a bad are, thing. No, but where is she getting, why is that um, not an uncommon thing to stumble on? Uh, I don't know where it started, but anecdotally speaking, the, somewhere along the lines, someone got it into a sermon that this is the most holy version of the scriptures. And I don't know why. I, I really don't, because we've okay. been tracking this for you. It's not like it's, well, this it's is an unknown. It, it mm-hmm. may have just been, uh, it may have been an emphatic desire to say the scriptures really matter. This, this is the word of God. And it was really, really meaningful in a way that says, you know, we want to hold this in high regard. But it got taken and it got run with. And now we have this whole school of thought saying that like the, anybody who doesn't use a KJV is like less Christian and mm-hmm. all that stuff. It's just, I think it's human sin. Mm-hmm. I suspect, but okay. it's a me. It's a it's a desire for a genuine connection with the scriptures, which is not a bad thing and no, should be no. celebrated. No. So, your second question. Um, so, with the slew of books like Dan Brown's book, which was some, you know, which was already what over ten years ago, twenty yeah. years ago. Yeah. Um, there's always more coming out like that. I, yeah. I wasn't even familiar with the um, ones that you brought, brought okay. up there, um, but I think of Matthew Vines. I think of a number of you know, really popular sources that are invading mm-hmm. evangelical churches. Jesus Calling. And any number of yeah. books, right, yeah. that without discernment kind of changes what, mm-hmm. you know, is in Scripture. For And I don't know that you can even recognize it unless you're in the Word, mm-hmm. you know, year after year. Um, how best do you counter things that are unscriptural but are being purported as... Um, well, people used to think this, but now we know what Paul really meant. Mm-hmm. How do you best uh, address that in a culture that's um, presenting likes, so likes much? Likes that stuff. Huh? Yeah. Likes that stuff. Oh, yeah, likes yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and says this is what the scriptures really say. Yeah. So. Well, I like to start with, in order to know that, you have to be really well-read in your scriptures. Right. To know that that's, <laughs> to be able to compare the two. Right. So I'd love to see their notes on the translation problems are what Paul was really saying. So that's usually where we go is the first one because usually it's kind of like a soundbite type thing that they're looking for. The second thing is to be aware of the attitude that says, give me anything other than a Bible to study, right? I know I'm a Christian. I know I'm supposed to be meditating on this day and night. I know I'm supposed to be living and breathing this material, but I don't want to. I want, give me any excuse otherwise. Give me any devotional that doesn't have to really open a Bible. Give me Jesus Calling, for example. Commentary. Give me, yeah, give me, yeah. Give me what, anything other than the scriptures because that automatically betrays an intentional problem, right? Mm-hmm. And there's where I'd focus. Why do we, why, why, mm-hmm. you know? Why are we fleeing the place that says it'll heal us? That's good. Yeah. Thank so you. it's usually the, the, the intention is what I focus on. Thanks, Caroline. Thank you for being so patient. No, sure. All right. So my question has to do with the, the time of creation, meaning six literal days. You know, there's, I've talked to many devout Christians. I personally believe that, but I've talked to many Christians who think, well, the world was here and it was void before. So it actually did exist. He just made it what it is now. And it was, 
you know, one day represents, you know, 10,000 mm -hmm. years or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then, um, so that was easy to say, like, well, okay, so evolution and creation. Well, yes, he created the beginning, but then it evolved from there. But he created the original. Like, I mean, it gets kind of mm -hmm. sideways if you think about it mm -hmm. like that. So what is your theory on day, how many days of creation? <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a big thing, but. <laughs> just, just real fast. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. The truth is, and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna give you this, it's gonna be disappointing. The truth is I have purposely avoided coming down on this issue because it's so contentious um, and I am so disinterested in the content that I, I'm always focused on other things and I have a great excuse to be focused on other things and maybe it is an excuse, but I haven't liked it. And there are so many formal apologists that have, that's their bread and butter that I'm just like, let these in highly intelligent people handle that one issue because I just am so disinterested in it personally. That being said, um, I tend on Mondays and Wednesdays to be a young earth creationist, but on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'm an old earth. And then I, like, I really like metaphor on Fridays. Um, I, I find compelling a lot of those positions and I'm extremely impressed by the depth of study for all of them. So I don't... The one I don't like is the, the new one, uh, uh, the evolution creation genre that says that God used macroevolution in order to bring about what we know today because it doesn't honor the text. I really don't like that. It makes me really uncomfortable. You want to make me bristle, do something bad with the Bible. So that one I would stay away from. Um, but I know William Lane Craig has a book coming out soon on that exact topic. Um, Hugh Ross is like a thousand times smarter than I could ever imagine being, and he covers that topic at infinitum. So I commend to you their work. But for me personally, I've, I've purposely avoided taking a position. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's the truth. That's All the right. truth. Thank you. And you're welcome. Oh, that's right. Uh, gosh, that was three years ago. We did a panel, and it's up on, it's, it's a podcast that's up on this church's website. I hosted a panel of the different positions on the age of the earth, and I... I poked each one and tried to raise objections and let the audience choose for themselves which one was the most persuasive, if you're interested. Thank you for that reminder. Hey, Brian. Hi. So um, I just had a question or a thought on the King James only stuff. Um, I wonder if there's a desire for certainty, maybe, just the fact that there's so many that's probably true. Translations out there are people hoping that someone will tell them this is the one you can depend on. This one's right. Yeah. I'm just wondering if there's something psychological. There's probably something to that. I can see that. Um, but my question is, okay, John 8. I happen to really like that story. <laughs> Did I mess with you? Um, I'm sorry. Um, you know, the go and sin no more part. It's a beautiful story. Um, I've heard a lot of sermons on it. I've been in a 12-hour conversation over just what Jesus wrote in the sand. Right. Yeah. But you said use it sparingly. Use it sparingly. So, so I'm wondering, I, I, it's, my experience hasn't been that people use that sparingly. So I'm wondering, um, what do we do with that? But on the other hand... Maybe one of the other variants you used, I wasn't very comfortable with because it talks about snakes and, mm. you know, mm -hmm. poison and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So is there a tendency to maybe want to keep the ones that we like 
and not keep the ones we don't like. And what like should we do with all psychologically? that? Psychologically? Yeah. What should we Probably. do with that? And, and do, does that mean that that story with the woman caught in adultery didn't yeah. happen? Not necessarily. In fact, that most of the textual scholars that I've, I've read personally have said it's highly likely that the story did happen and that they were just including a commentary. Some scribe was writing commentary about, hey, you should know that this is, this is what we've been told, blah, 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 and that's it, that was included. But it wasn't John that wrote it. That's the critical component. Um, that at least that's, that's where their position is. So psychologically speaking, I suspect you're probably very much onto something, and the best way to, to deal with that, I would say, is to, if you have a particular part of scripture that just really, really, really love and you're focusing on more than the others is to just be really honest with yourself and go, what is the reason I adore this? Is it because it's giving me some excuse to ignore something else? Or is it because I genuinely love this beautiful story about Jesus' heart and how it sounds? It's incredible. It's an incredible story. Um, so yeah, it's, it's being personally, um, holding yourself accountable, being honest about sin and how it it affects you and how it affects your devotions and what you're doing. And if you're using that to flee, then we need to be honest about the sin and uh, respond to it. Um, but if it's not for sinful reasons that that is happening, then enjoy it. And we got people asking questions. Sure. Are there Old Testament variants? You, you, you only talked about New Testament. Not really. There's not no. Okay. Um, it, the, the disagreement on stuff like the Old Testament stuff is like, somebody will bring up the book of Enoch. You know, like, should we, should we be reading that at the same level of scripture? But no, because of this, the way these are scrutinized, um, there really are almost no variations whatsoever, which is why most people don't even talk about it, because it's so boring. Anyway, Cody, you're up. Uh, when it comes to the reliability, we were talking about like the construction of uh, manuscripts back in the day, like what makes something canon versus what doesn't make something canon. And I guess I was wondering is like whenever books get thrown out entirely, we were talking about like if there was a contradiction in, in the Bible of those events, mm -hmm. um, would it have to be like a whole like a verse, a word? Like how much of a contradiction would it have to have to throw out a whole book, or would you just throw out a verse if there was a contradiction in it? Whenever you're analyzing the content for what goes into the Bible and what doesn't whole book. And for the most part, it's because we were reading books like, for example, the Gospel of Thomas. Like, you can read for yourself the books that didn't get included. And it's really obvious why they didn't get included. I mean, you have an animated cross emerging from the tomb, and it starts speaking, and it's just bizarre. And then on top of that, it didn't even get published until 250-something. Thomas was long dead, so that's definitely not Thomas. So that's why it wasn't included. You know, stuff like that. It's really obvious. My highest recommendation for all of my students, and I think I say this in my previous lecture, the best thing you can do to understand why those books were not included in the Bible is to read them. Yeah. Um, two more, and then I'll hop out. Okay. Um, whenever it comes to biblical inerrancy, uh, we were uh, talking about um, what the apostles wrote. What, Whenever, whenever we claim that something is inerrant, is that saying, it, like, do we have any evidence to defend that for what they wrote, or is it mostly just something that we claim through faith, or, or do we have, like, the original manuscripts to back those things up? Like, I guess it's kind of a clarifatory question, but... Like, so we don't have the originals. Okay. Um, and that's a, that's a, we only have copies. So the earliest copy, I think, is there, Kristen, is there a, the P52, is there a, with that? What's this? It says, like, 114 AD on it. I put up, I had, I had a slide somewhere, and maybe I didn't include it, I can't remember. Um, and it's got two faces on it, it says P52 circuit, we'll see if, if they can find it. Um, that's our earliest that we have, written within 14 years of the Gospel of John being completed. Um, so inerrancy only applies to the originals, 
which we do not have. And that's where the inspiration comes from. So what specifically are you looking for about so inerrancy? Is the claim to inerrancy strictly something that's based on, I guess you would say, faith? Since we can't actually, we don't have the originals to testify to that account. Like, is the claim based on one of saying, like, it was God-inspired and therefore it is inerrant, but we don't have the originals in order to actually, like, back up that claim? Kind of. So, yes, it's based on faith in that we don't have the originals, just like you're saying. However, the copies and the internal purity of the copies is itself a literary miracle okay. that lends evidence to the fact that there is, a, there is God inspiring this incurring. Because okay. that doesn't happen when human beings are doing it by themselves. Uh, last question. Okay. Um, given that we have, like, we have like a number for like New Testament manuscripts, like 99.5% mm -hmm. accuracies amongst them. When it comes to the Old Testament, I guess piggybacking off the other question. Yeah. Do we have a number for that one? Is it like I don't. Than, okay. I don't have it offhand. In fact, I had a note to try to look it up because I was trying to anticipate that one. But it's. I'm. I'm talking. It's. It's so perfect okay. that like when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, and there's thousands of years difference between what we had and the Dead Sea Scrolls, and there was zero. Breaking. I mean, that's that's how precise they were. So it's it's so boring that it's and again miraculous. That's that's why the Dead Sea Scrolls just blew the world out of the waters because they're like this is incredible. And we just have another round. Did you guys see that? Haretz just reported another round. So, Amanda. Hello. Hello. Um, my question's about kind of an objection when people say that there are contradictions in the Bible. Um, would we say that? Like, only one that I can think of off the top of my head is, like, in the Gospels, one account says that there was one angel at the tomb, another one says that there was three, mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, would we concede that there are actually technically contradictions in the Bible, but that they don't affect the meaning or the message of anything, or that all those, any examples of a contradiction that someone might bring up, that we can just explain that away? Oh, so... We, we, would say, we would say first, in the apologetics realm, a contradiction occurs not when there are two stories with different details, but when you have two stories covering the same thing that the details could not be true at the same time in the same sense. So we would formally explain contradictions. So in the case of the angels, um, you have, these are eyewitness testimonies. Somebody comes up and sees one angel and says, I saw one angel. Somebody else comes up and says, I saw three angels, saw three angels. Is it possible that that could have occurred? Yes and they're both right. So what we would say is, there were three angels, but this person only saw one of them. It's not a contradiction. That's how we would deal with that. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, sense. I can't tell if I've actually answered your question or not. Yeah, you did. <laughs> okay, cool. Exactly. Yep. It's point of view. It's just like if you come up on a car accident and you're seeing it from one side of the intersection, the other person's seeing it from the other side of the intersection. You're going to you're going to report different details, even though it was the same event. Right. Anna. Yes. Um, so I have several friends that are uh, only KJV, mm -hmm. not KJV only. Um, and one of the things that they say is that it's double inspired. Uh, <laughs> So Double inspired. To, yeah. So Bye. one thing I wanted you to talk about was inspired mm -hmm. and what that means. Mm -hmm. uh, and then maybe theorize what the double inspired they're talking about. I have no idea. What about? What is that even? That just makes it even more complicated yeah. for no reason. 
So what about inspired? So inspired, of course, like we would say that the, the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, the originals, um, as the apostle who was writing them down was writing them down, they were used their person and their writing and their style and how they converse and how they report was guided directly by the Holy Spirit. And that's where we get this inerrancy part. It matters that, that the, what they were writing down was going to be used through the ages to explain Christianity. And so there's a timelessness, there's a depth to it that's alive in the same way that the Holy Spirit is alive, even though it was penned at a single point in time by a single human being at a single point in history. That's what inspiration is. So double inspired, I would have to say, are they, so they're saying that like King James was doubly inspired to get it in English maybe? You're gonna have to ask them and come back. I'm, I'm interested about what double inspiration means. That's, that's the best, that's the nicest thing I can think of right now that they might, that they might imply with that. But it's weird, because even if you say that about King James, like William Tyndale, lost his life over translating into English for the first time a hundred years earlier. So why are we ignoring him? Why are we jumping to King James? I mean, this King James had a lot of problems. Have you read about King James? Like, why are we, I just don't, I don't, I don't fully understand it, but somewhere it became a tradition and tradition sticks sometimes. And again, I'm not trying to be, when I go and speak at KJV only churches, I use only KJV references, no problem. You know, it's not, it's not an issue. It's when you start telling other people that if you're not KJV, you're not a Christian, or if you start telling your kids that there's absolutely no errors at all, and there are no textual variants, and there's nothing. And you mean well, but then they get to college, and then you've just, you've just ruined them. And they're going to toss the baby out with the bathwater, and it's, you're just making my job harder, <laughs> you know? So I don't know. You'll have to let me know. <laughs> I don't know who was up first. Okay, go ahead. Anna, my question is this. Do you think that a lot of it, when people say, okay, I use the King James Version of the Bible, mm -hmm. okay? How old are they? What generation are they from? What Bible were they given to in, in, um, in church, mm -hmm. you know, in, in, as an, a mm -hmm. little kid, mm -hmm. you know? That, and then, so they, they, that's the only thing that they read and know about Jesus and God, mm -hmm. okay? And so they don't venture out to different Bibles, different writings by different people mm -hmm. because that's what they were given. You know, a person 80 years old is not going to go and get something that's published 10 years ago. Right. You yeah. know what I mean? Yep. And I can see that. I can see that saying? being, yep, I can see that being a generational, traditional thing. Yeah. Totally. Especially because I, like, I'm not from the Bible Belt, so this whole KJV only thing was new to me when I moved here. Um, are they? Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, I'm from California. Okay. 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 I'm from California, but I grew up in the Greek Orthodox Church. Okay. So Sunday school. So you use was, Greek, you use KJV. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah, so Sunday school is different. Yeah. Now, see, my aunts and stuff all all use the Greek Bible. Mm -hmm. They don't use English Bibles. Right. You know. So that's who taught me mm -hmm. was my Greek aunts mm -hmm. who taught me about it. You know. Yeah, so. it's, it's probably tradition, but the, the thing that, uh, it, the, the critical component is, are you deep in studying the word? I mean, if you me. really like the KJV, wonderful. But are you actually reading it, or is it dusty on a coffee table somewhere that you haven't touched in ages? But see, I've, I've yeah. read other, other people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
other than, than just that one. Yeah. You know? But that's my fallback. Just whatever you do. Just, <laughs> this is what, you know, stay away from this one. This is called a silver sword. This is a New World translation. They hand them out for free. This is a very effective tool if you want to purchase one for if you're talking to Mormon missionaries. This is the Joseph Smith translation. It's so bad that even the Mormons don't use it. Um, and you can ask them. Why? Why not? It's a great conversation starter. Great conversation starter. This is the Passion Bible. This is awful. Um, and this is the Mirror Bible. This is about as bad as it gets. Hey, Kristen, could you put up the slide with all of the different Bibles on the spectrum? With all the different bubbles. Yeah, so see how it gets red? Sectarians, stay away from those. Stay away from those. Unless you, you, know, you need something to burn. To keep warm. Cody, you're next. Um, I saw a news article. I was trying to find it, but it was talking about how new like manuscripts and evidence were being discovered, like you know, all the, all the time, like we talk about. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if like you foresee like a different kind of review process coming up. If it was like a council of Nicaea in the past, and I was wondering if you think something similar might arise in the future with like certain evidence that that might come up to maybe contradict or doesn't contradict, and whether or not anything should be included into new Bible versions or not. Like as we find more. <laughs> evidence or even potentially new books that don't also contradict should those also be added to the Bible and like see additions that would ever be well, yeah be added to the Bible so kind of so first the Council of Nicaea in particular was convened to deal with our very particular belief system it had nothing to do with putting the Bible together it had to do with responding to Arianism as a result though and we talk about the, where the, the first creed comes from because the Athanasian creed comes, well, just about 50 years after the Nicene. Um, so that was a creedal statement that referenced the, the New Testament for the first time. And that's why people say, oh, this is the first time the New Testament's codified. That's not actually true. And I, I bring that up in one of my lectures. Um, do I think that new things are gonna, ever going to be added to the Bible? No, I don't. And the reason why is because that would imply that God allowed part of his word to lapse for 2,000 years, and I don't think that's real. I would, I would say anybody that says, I've got a new book, or I've got something that's been lost and now it's found, um, is immediately a red flag. Um, and for the most part, when this happens, and it does happen fairly regularly, like the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, that was fraudulent, and, but we didn't find out about it for almost 15 years. Um, she lost her PhD. I forget the woman's name over that one. Total lie. She's manufactured it. And uh, as certain frauds come up and that gets better, I would expect that. Every once in a while, people will argue that like the missing Corinthian letters, if we ever found those, that they'd be included. Again, I highly doubt it. This is just me spitballing though. I just, there, there's something wrong with implying that God's word has missing pieces that he just allowed to remain missing for two millennia for his people. I just, makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. Thanks, Cody. Next one. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm not really exactly sure how to ask this question, but it has to do with what I'm hearing a lot lately just from my peers and uh, media, which is I feel like the, all the books of Paul are being discredited. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so I try to stand on their shoes for a moment and just say, well, how do we know that during the, again, the canonization process, Mm -hmm. that there wasn't the influence of white supremacy and a man of his times and old-fashioned values. I don't think that at all. Mm -hmm. But I don't have a defense when people bring that up, and I'm hearing it more and more, and I'd love to hear something you have. Critical theory. We're going to actually talk about that next month 
as a little bit as well. I'll give that little blurb right now. We're at the next Russia Christie Community Night. We're going to be talking about the spectrum between Christian nationalism and Christian progressivism and all the different things that are playing into how Christians respond politically and what does that mean and what are those distinctions and that those two ends of the spectrum are two idols and we're going to squash those idols. That's what we're going to do. Um, so with that, you're seeing critical theory. The, the best way that I have seen to respond to that particular like material is to, point, yep, guy. Yep, is to point out how shallow it is. And you can do that very nicely and very graciously, and, but you have to have a spine because it, it comes off as, as unkind. But it's, do we actually believe that this is the word of God? Yes or no? Because it's really the no that starts getting into the, well, we can throw this out, we can throw this out, we can throw this out, and we can start making God our own personal God that's in our image as opposed to our, us in his image. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's usually pretty shallow, especially if you can have like a Bible, IVB Bible background commentary mm-hmm. to demonstrate that almost none of the things that we're dealing with culturally right now, from even from the critical theory perspective, like uh, white supremacy and all mm-hmm. that stuff, is not something that was even being dealt with in the first century. So why are we reading that into the text? That's called eisegesis. We're not supposed to do that. We have to okay. do exegesis. Yeah, that's, that's where I would go, but oh. I know that that can be really difficult and extremely um, a lot of material all at once that doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily cogent. So okay. you kind of have to like take one thing at a time. Okay. Yeah, it's overwhelming. I'm sorry about that. No, it's okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and also, I just want to mention that um, uh, Anna cannot um, say this for herself and she wouldn't, but I asked permission from her earlier um, because, uh, I'm very emotional, Mom. <laughs> sorry. It's okay. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, my daughter and her friends go to UT, and I just value what she teaches them, like, more than anything that we've paid tens of thousands of dollars for over there. So I asked her if I could just um, make a little collection, because <laughs> she is funding herself, and... Um, I just think that for these young people that are here, all of you that are here, just being able to stand on God's word and to preach it to the next generation. <clears throat> Sorry. I told her, like, you're affecting my grandchildren by building up my daughter. And so, anyway, we're going to be at the door with envelopes <laughs> if you want one. That's very <laughs> kind. Thank you very much, Tracy. <laughs> yeah, if you want to talk to the UT kids, they're all back there. No, but I do have these, and what it does is it'll tell you to go to anakitko at rashachristi.org um, to either email me or you can just type it into Google. I'm the only anakitko out there. Anakitko Rashachristi will bring you right to the page, and it'll say, do you want to support your local apologist? And you can do it that way real easy. Two seconds. So we, we changed the whole platform. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no worries, no worries. Yes. Okay. Thank you for being so patient. Oh, you're welcome. Um, first of all, this is a disclaimer that if anybody knows my mother, it's okay because I have discussed this with her multiple times. Um, <laughs> We're about I to get personal. It, it, yeah. Okay. So I find it real interesting that the discussion, there have been a lot of discussion over the KJV. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother is in that 80-year-old age range, mm-hmm. and she, that's what she grew up with. Mm-hmm. And it's not that she doesn't give credit to the other translations Mm -hmm. that are accurate, but KJV is her life. Mm -hmm. And so here is just, this is just my funny. So again, if you know my mom, she knows I say this. Mother, mother is, 
she is a, a diehard study of the Bible. Mm -hmm. She knows it in and out. She sends me a Bible lesson that she has done each week. She lives out of state. But it's funny when I'm with her that she talks like I do. We sound alike. But when she goes to pray, she's praise in King James Version language. All of my all of my memorized scripture is King James and I actually well, I actively like stumble to, because too. I'm about to say it in case Yes, thou and yeah. thy and all yeah. and I and I will I have said to her unfortunately multiple times because I'm pretty blunt, Mother, did you know you just prayed in King King James Version? <laughs> and she's like, I did not and it comes from her belief that it is giving the most highest respect to God this is to, to, to use it. It's very reverent. Leave so anyway, alone. I just wanted to That's say that because she does yes. pray in King James. Yes, whatever you do, do not go to your King James Version relatives and disparage them. It's wonderful. Reverence is what we're looking for. I just also deal with the, the opposite in my career, which is all the kids who are thinking all these things and then nobody corrects it and there's no there's no real depth of translation talk and then it's they're just gone. 80% of Christian of entering freshmen to UT um, that claim to be Christian walk away by the end of their freshman year. Yeah, that's sad. Do we have? Go ahead. What are your thoughts on the Apocrypha? I like it. Cool. <laughs> Read it. It's history. It's not, don't hold it to the same level of scripture, right? Because we've got some genuine contradiction problems in like Maccabees. Yeah. But as far as history is concerned, extremely valuable. Okay. It's, and it's very, very interesting. Just it's not, it's not on the same level as the word of God. And so long as you keep that distinction there, no problem. Inerrancy. <laughs> There's some pretty prolific conservative, widely respected biblical scholars who would say something to, to the effect of inerrancy is a relatively new idea in the grand scheme of things. It came with modernism. The Bible is infallible. The Bible is authoritative. It's been protected by God to hold it in the highest view in that regard, but there's no need to say actually inerrant. And so I'm curious does that ruffle your feathers, and what's your response to it? it just, the, the context matters. So if you're like a Geisler Chicago Statement camp person, mm. which is, may take it a little too far, which is that the English translations are inerrant, yeah. well, I just gave a whole presentation demonstrating that that's not the case. Mm -hmm. So there, there's a problem there. However, holding the scriptures as in, inerrant in the original and trustworthily given to us such that it is an authority over our life, bar none, it is the standard for God's word. No problem. That makes me happy. So the, the question is how inerrancy is being applied on what level? So authoritative for our lives, yes. Yes. But in, in a way that says that everything that I just gave you is mistaken somehow, then I have a problem. No. Okay. So if someone say, I affirm everything Anna said tonight in okay. terms of the accuracy, mm -hmm. and they went on to say, we believe the Bible is infallible, it's the final arbiter on all issues, mm -hmm. it doesn't back off of any of those things, mm -hmm. it basically says we believe the Bible is infallible because it is authoritative, because it's been protected and brought to us by God, but there's no need to say that it is also inerrant 
and that can be a stumbling block for some, so. That doesn't so make me what? bristle immediately. I, I can see how that could be abused long-term if it's not really, really made distinct. So that, that would be something I'd be like, all right, we need to really write this out and make sure that we're on top of this and make sure our people aren't misunderstanding what that means. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't make me bristle immediately. Yeah, yeah. Hi, I just wanted to get your thoughts on what version of the Bible do you think is the most inaccurate and what is so damaging about it? What is the most inaccurate? Version of the Bible, yes. I really don't like what the NIV guys are doing lately. Like, so one of the things that's, that's happened is um, they've decided to go back into the Hebrew Here's why I don't like it. I'll, I'll lay the, it looks like there is a political agenda that is being allowed to creep in and dictate how scripture is being related to human beings. And that's always a problem, right? So I haven't seen it yet, and I'm not sure, but what I'm hearing is that they're going in and because of the transgender lobby are permitting parts of scripture that are distinctly represented in the masculine, and because theologically we have God as a trinity not having a gender specific, right, because it's not a human, they're going to they're gonna go ahead and translate it he or she at the same time, or potentially she if that's allowed in the, grammatically even though contextually speaking it's not allowed because they can, they can argue grammatically that we Got can it. do that. And it's to make other people more comfortable, I guess. I don't like that. I don't like when you're playing games with the scriptures. I don't like it at all. Um, especially because like, they'll do things like, here's how the game is played, right? They're going to do that with God. But where it says Lucifer and that grammatical representation is required as well, they're not going to do that with Lucifer. So if you're going to name God a she, then you better name Satan a she as well. You see what I'm saying? Yes. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yes, ma'am. All right. So uh, my granny, she used to be like a Baptist. We grew up Baptist and all that. But now she's a Messianic Jew. I always say it wrong. No, no, that's perfect. <laughs> but... um. Like, we go back and forth a lot. Not, like, we agree on most of everything. And, but she's like, Christina, you need to get the scriptures. I think that's, the, like, the Bible she uses. Mm -hmm. And I know nothing about it. I'm like, I'm scared. I don't want to. I used <laughs> to be one of the King James Virgin. I used to have that one. And then I was like, this is too hard. I need something new. And okay. then I got the NIV, and I was like, okay, is it the same? Yep, okay, good. Okay. Like, you know, I was that person. So I don't even know what that is. I don't. I don't know if it's good to read or not. The scriptures, like, she's like, Christina, you need to. She's like, um, she's like, and also she's like, we, we have to call him Yahweh. Like, you have to call him by his name. When you don't call him Yahweh, then it's wrong. Mm -hmm. Like, no, I'll, I'll just let you read it for yourself. Like, that's one thing we, I'm like, Granny, I don't know. <laughs> I'm reading. I'm still learning. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, so that's, yeah. I don't, I don't know what I'm saying. I mean, is she calling the Savior Yeshua? Yeah, she calls me all the way in the That's okay. She's, she's, That's okay. Yeah. Messianic Judaism gets hairy because there's a genuinely, it's a wonderful, authentic, um, it's a continuation of Judaism and, and with the acceptance of the Messiah, right? And it's a wonderful movement. But then there's also a movement called Messianic Judaism that started in the 1970s, and it's this legalistic, you need to be doing all of, you need to have Sabbath on Saturday, you need to be, 
You need to be doing, going back to all of the legalism that the Judaizers were already dealt with, right, in Acts, and going back and trying to redo that. That version of Messianic Judaism is exceptionally dangerous. Yeah, they, they worship on Saturdays, yeah. and they don't but, eat shrimp and all that kind of stuff. So there's nothing wrong with expressing your Christian liberty that way, right? If you, if you enjoy reflecting um, and living in that, in that genre, and that culture, no problem. If you're telling every other Christian that they must do those things in order to be saved, now we have a problem. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So that a loving reverence and a desire to go back to culturally Jewish heritage, no problem. Forcing culturally Jewish norms on Christians who are free and saying you're no longer a Christian unless you do these things. We already dealt with that. That's what the Judaizers are doing. Paul talks about that ad infinitum. So that would be what I'd have to watch out for. But it doesn't necessarily mean your grandma means poorly or she's gotten into a cult or anything. Okay. Yeah. Just let me know. Keep me updated. I'll help you. All right. It's 840. You ready to go home? Okay. Good night. I love you. Let me know if you need me.